again. Y'all hear me okay? Uh, why don't you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Turn on your device, however you want to do that. I always invite you to turn in the text that we're going to be in because I think that's how you're going to get the most out of this. This is, in the Christian tradition, Palm Sunday, so it's next Sunday is Easter Sunday, so uh, a lot of churches focus on that last week of Jesus' life, and it starts with the triumphal entry. And in the Gospel of Mark, which is what we've been studying for a long time now, uh, Mark chapter 11 is the triumphal entry, and we were there a few weeks ago, so we're not looking at Palm Sunday today. Where we find ourselves in the text is Mark chapter 14. And in Mark chapter 14, Jesus takes the Passover meal, which becomes known as the Lord's Supper. That's where we find ourselves today. So that's why we're doing things a little bit differently. We're, this sermon is going to serve also as our communion thought. So we're going to take communion during the sermon this morning, a little bit different. So for those of you who thought... I'm going to come today, take my communion, and dart out of there a little bit early and miss the sermon. I've smiled all week thinking about the, that. <laughs> so if you do that every week and you don't know who I am, my name is Jody. I'm the preaching minister here at this church. But I want to walk you through uh, Mark chapter 14, these two mill stories, as we prepare our hearts and our minds to take communion. So in Mark chapter 14... The first mill story, Jesus is a guest. He's going to be the guest in someone's house, and we'll read about that in just a moment. But what we see right away from the beginning of Mark chapter 14 is another Markin sandwich. How many of you love these Markin sandwiches? If you've been with us the whole time we've studied the Gospel of Mark over and over again, this is how Mark likes to tell these little sub-stories in the Gospel. He'll start with one thing, go to another, and then come back to what he started with. So here in Mark chapter 14 and verses 1 and 2, he starts with the plot to kill Jesus. And then in Mark chapter 14, verse 10 and 11, Judas will enter the story as the one who will help carry that out. And in between is this first mill story. But I want to start in verse 1 and 2. It was two days before the Passover... And the festival of the unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. For they said, not during the festival or there may be a riot among the people. You know, this plot to kill Jesus started all the way back in Mark chapter 3. But now that he's in Jerusalem, it's really picking up here. And we see from verses 1 and 2, the imminence of Jesus' death. It's clearly in the air. The time is coming. His death is just right around the corner. But before the plot continues, in verse 3, Jesus goes into the home of someone named Simon the leper to be a guest, to sit at table, to have table fellowship, which I've mentioned before. Table fellowship was so incredibly important in that culture. It shows that you identify with someone and that you associate with them. And let me read verse 3 slowly. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. As he sat at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very costly ointment of nard. And she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. 
So right away, I find verse 3 incredibly intriguing. Jesus is in the habit of eating with all the wrong people. Who goes to a leper's house to share table fellowship and to eat with a leper? Jesus does. Who lets a woman in that culture come in there and interrupt the meal and then come to her defense? Jesus does. Who eats with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus does. Who feeds not only the Jews in Jewish territory, but Gentiles in Gentile territory? Who does that? Jesus does. So all along, as we've read through the Gospel of Mark, we see those who are welcome at Jesus' table. And right before he takes the Passover meal, which he'll institute the Lord's Supper, we get a glimpse of all of those who are welcome at Jesus' table. And when I say all, I mean all. As Jesus is inclusive, he is welcoming people to come to his table. He is willing to sit at table and dine with you, where the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were very exclusive in that. And the rest of this first meal story is very intriguing, and I'm going to come back to that when we get to our contribution this morning, so I'll leave you hanging for just a moment. But it ends, and this Markin sandwich in verse 10 and 11 Judas agrees to be the one to betray Jesus. And then we move into Jesus as a host. We move into the second meal story in Mark chapter 14. And we're told in verse 12, On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? Uh, Jesus was a Jewish man who lived in a Jewish culture, was a Jewish rabbi, and the one thing that they did every year was take the Passover. So his disciples knew this was going to take place because that's what they did. And we assume that Jesus will play the role of the head of the family in the Passover meal. So they go to make preparations, and let me tell you, it takes a lot to prepare a Passover meal. Anybody in this room ever taken a Passover meal? Maybe symbolically, maybe, maybe one or two of you. So several years ago, I was approached by what I call the LTC moms, the ladies who help run LTC. And that year, LTC Bible Bowl was on the Gospel of Luke. So they asked me, on the Thursday night before Easter, before LTC, uh, will you host a Passover meal for the kids? So I said, Sure. That can't be that hard, right? Just read a book and then do it. Well, I had no idea what I had agreed to and how much preparation was actually going to go into this thing. I started reading books. I went and met with other ministers in town who do Passover meals at their church. I wound up driving to Dallas to meet up with a Jewish rabbi. And then I went to a Jewish store and I started buying things. I mean, they sold me on all sorts of things. And I bought this Seder plate, which I know you probably can't see too well, but you can look at it after the sermon we had a camera, I'd say zoom in on this right now, but on this Seder plate, it shows you all the different elements that would go into a Passover meal, and it's a lot to prepare. The Passover meal, which they took every year, was a reminder of the Exodus story. When the Israelites were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, God calls Moses to bring them out of slavery, out of the hand of the slave master Pharaoh, and he sends these plagues, 
And then eventually God rescues them through the Red Sea into the wilderness. You know the story probably from the book of Exodus. The Passover was a festival to remind them of God's deliverance. So on the Passover plate, they would have a lamb. And the lamb would remind them of the blood that was on the doorpost. And when they put the blood on the doorpost, the angel of death would pass over their their door and not kill their firstborn. Right? So they would have a lamb on the plate to remind them of that Passover. They would have bread, unleavened bread, like we take today, because the unleavened bread reminds them of how they had to leave Egypt in haste. So the bread didn't have time to rise, so they took the bread, and we take unleavened bread. Uh, that's symbolically what that reminds us of. They have bitter herbs on the plate. I actually cleaned and washed this last night from a meal that we had four years ago that still had some of these bitter herb stains on it. And the bitter herbs remind, reminded the Jewish people of the tears that they shed and the suffering that they endured while they were slaves in Egypt. And then they would have four cups of wine, and each cup would be symbolic of something else from the story. So it was a very involved meal. And it takes a lot of time to prepare a Passover meal. So Jesus is going to send his disciples ahead to prepare the meal. But it's not just any old Passover this year. Jesus is going to have a twist with it. In verse 13 through 16, So he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the city. A man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. It probably would have been easy to find this guy because usually in that culture, women carried the water. But this time it's a man carrying the water. So find this guy, follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So the disciples set out and went to the city and found everything as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover meal. We see again Jesus is making preparations. In Mark 11, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, he had the colt ready, he had everything prepared. Jesus is a man who comes prepared, and now somehow he has this preparation for the Passover meal. And the tempo of Jesus knowing what's coming, the foreknowledge of Jesus, the predictions of Jesus is really starting to pick up here. He's predicted all along the way from chapter 8 and on that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer, be rejected, die, and rise on the third day. And that's about to happen. When he entered into Jerusalem, he knew what was going to happen with the cult. The Lord needs it, and they're going to let him borrow it. He goes into the temple, he clears the temple, and then in chapter 13, he predicts that the temple will be destroyed, and eventually that will happen. And here he predicts how the Passover will be prepared. And then he's going to predict that somebody will betray him, and that comes true in Judas. And then he predicts that Peter will deny him three times, and that becomes true. And, and then he dies on the cross and he resurrects. So the tempo of the knowledge that Jesus has and his predictions are starting to really pick up and increase. And then he's going to sit down to have this meal, and in verse 17... It says, when it was evening, he came with the twelve. Kind of an eerie statement because by the next evening, Jesus will be dead. So when it's evening, he sits down with his twelve, and what is normally a joyful Passover meal becomes somber very quickly. 
And when they had taken their places and were eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. We know that to be Judas because we're on this side of the story. But in that world, that was the worst possible break of trust was the betrayal of table fellowship. I don't think I could stress enough how important it was who you ate with is who you associate with. Jesus is the host of this meal, and Judas is going to betray his host. And Jesus predicts it. So in verse 19, they began to be distressed and say, say to him one after another, Surely not I. They're looking for a negative answer. It's not I. It's not me, is it? Right? They know it's not. But they're wanting Jesus to give them that satisfaction. Which is ironic because earlier in Mark, the disciples had been arguing about which one of them was the greatest. And now they're arguing about which one of them is not the worst. And then he continues on. He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the bowl with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. Really harsh statement on Judas there. If this were a class, I think we could have some very interesting discussions. So this takes place as a part of the Passover meal, but Jesus playing the role of the head of the family begins the meal. And it is a very different type of Passover, one that they will never forget, and the Passover will never be the same after this. Jesus takes all the elements of the Passover and he reinterprets it in light of himself, in light of the cross. He's leading a new exodus. Most of you probably won't remember this, but on the weekend of Labor Day back in September, I did an intro into the Gospel of Mark as we prepared to study Mark. And I told you that Mark presents Jesus in three ways. He's a teacher, he's a shepherd, and he's a warrior. And Mark presents Jesus as a divine warrior, the way of the warrior. He is leading God's people on a new exodus. This time it's not out of Egypt. This exodus, this new exodus, is out of slavery to sin and to death. So when Jesus takes this Passover meal, which we call the Lord's Supper, it's a new exodus story. And he takes the Passover elements and he reinterprets all of it. And then he invites us to take place in the incarnation itself. The word become flesh and then we take part in the incarnation as we take the Lord's Supper. So we get to the bread. And if you're helping serve communion this morning, this would be a good time to get in place for that. In verse 22 of Mark 14, while they were eating, he took a loaf of bread and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. So he had given thanks which is this Greek word, Eucharist. And if you're familiar with this word or you've heard it before, usually Eucharist is associated with communion with the Lord's Supper. So he'd given thanks. Not the first time in Mark where he offers thanks. When he fed the 5,000 in Jewish territory, he broke bread and he gave a Eucharist. He gave thanks. 
When he fed the Gentiles, the 4,000 in Gentile territory, he broke bread, he gave the Eucharist, he gave thanks. And now he does it again. He offers thanks. And then he takes the bread that they would normally take at a Passover meal, and he says, take, eat, this is my body. So he reinterprets it and says, this represents my body. Now, one of the best examples of understanding how Jesus becomes food, how Jesus becomes a life source for us, is this story of this rugby team. In the 1972, a, a rugby team took a flight from Uruguay, and they were flying over the Andes Mountains. And something went wrong with the plane. I don't know if they hit the top of a mountain or what, but they crashed in the middle of the Andes Mountains. Horrible accident. And several people died on the, the crash, but 16 men survived. So they laid their teammates who had died on the flight in the ice and the snow, and then they waited in what remained of the plane, and they could still hear on the radio from the, from the plane, from where the pilots sat, they could hear that there were rescue crews out looking for them. So they just sat and they waited. They knew that their deliverance was coming soon, but day after day, no one showed up. Nobody could find them. And then they heard on the radio that the search teams had been called off. So then they realized, we're out in the middle of the Andes Mountains by ourselves with no food or water. How are we going to survive? So they had to do the unthinkable. And what became food for them were the bodies of their deceased teammates who had been preserved in the ice and the snow. And this went on for weeks, and it gave them enough nourishment for two guys to hike out and to go get help, and eventually, as you see in this picture, they were eventually rescued. Kind of a strange story, sounds like cannibalism. And when they were rescued, they feared having to tell the public what they had to do to survive, especially telling the parents of their deceased teammates. And one of the dads spoke up for the rest of the parents, and he said, you know what? My son's death provided life for others. So what an honor, what a way to go out. And they were relieved to hear that. The ironic thing is, on this flight, if all of them would have survived, then all of them would have died. But because some of them died, others were able to live. So when Jesus says, when he's taking this Passover meal and he says, take this bread, this is my body. What Jesus is telling us, what he's telling his disciples, is that from now on, when you take this bread, this represents my body. And this becomes life for you. So this morning, we're going to take communion as we flow through Mark, as we take communion with Jesus, with his disciples. I want to offer a prayer, and then I want to challenge you to just reflect on the body of Jesus as he gave himself up on the cross. So let's pray. God, we come before you today with this promise that when we take the bread and the cup each week that you're with us and that this represents, this is symbolically represents your body and so this reminds us of why we are here, why we are, are sinful people but we're saved and, and we know that as we take this we're not just celebrating the death of Jesus, but also the resurrection because he did not remain in the grave. So as we celebrate, as we take this bread right now, help us to take it in a way that, that honors you, Father, and help us to take it in a way 
that we can truly reflect on what you've done for us and be with our hearts and our minds at this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. In chapter 14, after they take the bread, verse 23, then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and all of them drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant. Seems to be a reference to Exodus 24 and verse 8. And we know that throughout the Old Testament, the bloodshed is the enactment of the covenant. All the way from Genesis, all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, and they cut the animals in half, and the blood flows to the middle, and in a Caesarean vassal covenant, you know, both parties are supposed to walk through the blood, and then all throughout the Old Testament, the blood enacts the covenant, and here Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant. So it's a new covenant. And just like the bread, he reinterprets his blood, this cup, to represent him and the cross. And he says it's poured out for many. Which reminds me of Mark 10, 45, where Jesus has already said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And now he's saying, my blood is poured out for many, for all. There was a young girl named Jenny Stipen who got married a few years ago. And the only problem leading into the wedding ceremony was that she didn't have anybody to walk her down the aisle. Her dad had been killed about a decade before her wedding by a 16-year-old mugger. Her dad was an organ donor, and they kept her dad's body on life support for 24 hours, and donated his heart to a guy named Arthur Thomas. And so Arthur Thomas got to live because her dad died, and then 10 years later, when it was time for the wedding ceremony, she needed someone to walk her down the aisle, so she called up this guy named Arthur Thomas, who'd received her dad's heart, and asked if he would do the honors, to which he agreed. And the night before the wedding, Jenny met Arthur Thomas for the first time ever and she said she walked up to him and she she placed her hand on his chest and could feel his heart beating which was her dad's heart so walking her down the aisle the next day was her dad was able to have a piece in that a part in that as her dad's heart lived on through this other man and Arthur Thomas getting the honors of doing this he said what an honor it was so as we take this cup right now the correlation there is Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. So when we take the cup, again, like the bread, this becomes our life source. Reminding us week after week what we rely on, not just for eternal life, but for life now.
So I want to offer a prayer before we take this cup. God, we come before you again today, and I just pray that our hearts, our minds, our thoughts are in the right place, and that well, we don't get everything right, we don't do it all right, but Lord, one thing that we do each week is we, we take a, a pinch of this bread, a sip of this cup, Father, and we sit in silent reflection, and we sit together in this room, and I just pray, Lord, as your Spirit is with us and among us, that we can take this in a way that pleases you, Father, but that we'll be reminded of your blood on the cross which was poured out for many, including us in this room, and that we take this and we're thankful and we're reminded. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So because I never do communion thoughts or haven't done this since I was a teenager, uh, I get the chance to finally say separate and apart from, okay? That was our communion time uh, where we take the body and the blood, the bread, the cup, and remember Jesus, but this is also a convenient time to take up a contribution, so that's why we normally do it around the same time. And before we offer this contribution, I want to just bring you back to that first meal story in Mark 14. Jesus is at the home of Simon the leper, and this woman, this unnamed woman, you could see what some think is a parallel account in John chapter 12, but this woman in Mark is unnamed, and she anoints Jesus' head with very expensive perfume. And when she does that, she's criticized. The others sitting at the table, they say, why this waste? This could have been sold and given to the poor. I mean, this is a year's worth of wages. And in verse 6, Jesus defends her, and he said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me. Some translations say, She has done something beautiful for me. So they call it a waste. Jesus calls it beautiful. In verse 7, You always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish, but you will not always have me. Which Jesus is not devaluing the poor are taking care of the poor, that's something that he highly values. I think he's calling them on their motives because they always have the chance to help the poor and they don't seem to do it. Now all of a sudden they want to be heroes and want to help the poor. Verse 8 and 9, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Nowhere else in all of the Gospels does someone receive such high accolades. What she has done, Jesus said, she prepared my body for burial. She didn't know she was doing that. She was just giving Jesus what she had, and then Jesus interprets it and says, she is getting me ready for my burial. And he defends her. It says that wherever the gospel is preached in the world, her story will be told. But in verse 8, 
Jesus, when he's defending her, he said she did what she could. She offered what she had and she did what she could. She wasn't worried about the criticism that she was receiving from everyone else at the table. And each week as we offer our contribution, whether you actually put money in the plate or you donate online, I've admired this woman the last few weeks as I've studied this because I think about contribution and I just think, okay, we know Jesus is watching. And like this woman, we shouldn't be worried about what other people are thinking, whether they're praising us or criticizing us. We just take on the same attitude as she did what she could. So as we offer a contribution, we just offer in faith and we do what we can and we trust God to use what's given here today. So I want to offer prayer and then we'll give our contribution. God, we come before you again and we pray that um, we can take on the same attitudes that these women that we see in the Gospel of Mark have. From earlier, the woman who at the temple treasury threw in very little but offered all that she had and Jesus was impressed with that. Or this woman here that anoints Jesus and, and Jesus defends her and says she did what she could. And I pray for all of us, Father, that we do what we can, we offer what we have, and I trust and pray that you will take the funds that are given here and it will be used in a way that honors you, that furthers your kingdom, and be with those who oversee that. And be with us in our hearts as we give this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now that we have taken our communion, offered our contribution, now let the sermon begin. Are you ready for that? I'm just joking. Let the sermon conclude. We'll finish where Mark finishes with this Passover with a difference. All right, so Mark 14 and verse 25, Truly I tell you, I will never drink of the fruit of the vine again until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Uh, People debate on what Jesus means exactly by this verse here. One thing that's not debatable is that that Passover that they took is a Passover with a difference. A Passover that they have never taken before and that will change the world forever. And so from now on, when we take Passover, when we take communion, we do it in light of the body and the blood of Jesus. And for centuries... Christians have taken communion on the first day of the week. I won't get into the history of each denomination and how they do it and the way that we do it as the Church of Christ. We just do it every week because the first day of the week is what? It's Resurrection Day. Jesus rose from the grave on the first day of the week, so we take communion on the Lord's Day on the first day of the week, and the Lord's Supper is a celebration of God's victory over death through Jesus. When we take communion, it's not just a funeral meal where we reflect back with sadness. No, we take this and we 
We honor God through what he did for us, but we also know that he didn't stay dead. That the tomb was found empty, so communion is a celebration of God's victory over death through Jesus. The Lord's Supper is our witness to the world. We, we tell the world when we take the bread and the cup each week that we believe in the good news of this death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So each week when we take the Lord's Supper, this is our witness to the world. And the Lord's Supper is, it represents the diversity of Jesus' table. If you look around the room, and you can think about the diversity that's in this room, people of different back, backgrounds, different races, different uh, levels in life, different ages, different generations, different socioeconomic statuses, whatever it may be, everyone's welcome at Jesus' table. So when we take communion each week, it's a reminder of the church's diversity. And the Lord's Supper is also a reminder of our covenant vow made at baptism. For many of you in this room who have been baptized into Christ, each week when you take the Lord's Supper, it's a reminder of the vow that you made, the vow of discipleship. Not to just be saved from your sins, but to be saved for a purpose. So our lives, we depend on the body and the blood and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so in verse 26, it says, When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They sung the traditional Passover hymn from the Psalms. And this morning we're going to conclude where Jesus concludes. In just a second we're going to sing another song and Tony's going to lead us in that. And as we sing a song, as we conclude our communion service this morning, we also want to offer an invitation for you. Maybe you're curious and you're thinking about this cup and this bread and and this Jesus saying it represents his body and his blood. And, and maybe you're ready to become a follower of Jesus and be baptized into Christ and to join him in his death, burial, and resurrection. The invitation this morning is for you. If you're struggling right now or maybe just in your own life, this communion reminds us, it reminds me, it reminds you of our own sinful nature and you want to change and you need prayers, we have elders who are around this room who will receive you, who love you, who will be glad to do that. So come for prayers, come to put on Christ, whatever you need. I want to invite you to stand as we sing.